This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. All right. Well, guys, we've got to jump right on in. Um, everybody, you can follow along on, uh, on your notes. You should have gotten a note sheet inside of your service guide. And you can also follow along on the, uh, the Uversion Bible app. But we're going to start a new, um, a new series today. It's probably going to be about four weeks. And um, this is something that's probably, it's, it's going to tie well into the last series on trusting Father. Um, it's also going to tie into the, not the last series, I did the one before on um, my life, my responsibility. How many of you were a part of that, member of that series? So, um, so today we're going to talk um, on the topic, a top, the topic called Do Hard Things. Everybody say, do hard things. And how many of you know, our culture, our society does not like to do the hard things anymore. And I think it's part of the reason that we're in the situation that we are in. Now, I'm going to do a quick survey. How is it that you deal with hard things in your life? How many of you would say that you're the type when you know that you've got something hard coming up that you've got to do, there's a deadline, something's got to happen? How many of you are the stress out and get anxious kind of person? That you're dreading the day, you're counting down the minutes, you're rehearsing it over and over again in your head a thousand times, and you wish it would just hurry up and get here because you can't settle down until it happens? Yep. How many of you are the type, how many of you are the procrastinator? Well, I, oh, I can't do it today. I, I've got to finish that series on Netflix tonight. Uh, I've, I've got to, you know, may, may, next week maybe, you know, how many of you would say you're the procrastinator? How many of you would say you're the one that tries to find a way to avoid it? Oh, I just, oh, I just, you, you're, you're tiptoeing around and going, mm, well, maybe, maybe if, if I can get this person to do this or this person to say this, maybe I can just avoid that this is even an issue and maybe it will just go away on its own. How many of you have ever done that before? Okay. How many of you are the tiptoe, beat around the bush kind of person? You have trouble sometimes saying what really needs to be said because you're just so nice, you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, and so you just, you, 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 what you find is by the time you've said about a thousand words, you haven't really said anything at all. There? Okay, yeah, you don't want to raise your hands. And then, how many of you are the type that says, just get it done, don't wait till tomorrow, we need to do it right now, and you don't mince words, and you say what needs to be said, and you just get it out there. How many of you are that type? Okay. Doing hard things. I don't think there's anybody who just loves hard things. You know, Zach actually mentioned this morning, which got me thinking. He was talking about how, you know, our, our culture, our society has changed where we don't talk face-to-face much anymore. You know, we don't talk much at all anymore. You know, we, we say a lot of stuff over social media and such, and again, we don't say much of anything at all. And actually, some of you, a few of you here were part of a discussion we had um, on, on Facebook, on my Facebook page this week, and ac- actually, Mr. Mita was a part of it, and we were talking, and what it all boiled down to is, why don't, we, why don't we talk about our issues before we get angry, before we blow up, before we react, before we badmouth, before we name call, before we put posts on social media, why is it that nobody will stop and respectfully and honorably talk things out anymore? Why? Because we don't want to do the hard things. When it comes to that place we got to talk things out, we know that it's hard. We don't want to offend others. We don't want to have to deal with conflict and confrontation, right? Most people don't like those things. We're afraid many times of vulnerability and exposing our emotions and our feelings. 
And unfortunately, in our society today, many times we feel like our opinion is the only opinion. And we don't really care what anybody else has to say that has an opinion or an idea that's different than what we do. Would y'all agree with that? So why don't we do the hard things? I was thinking about this, been thinking about this for weeks, and I think part of the thing is, I think that we have gotten far too comfortable in our society today. I think we've gotten far too comfortable in our lives, and I think that we've become far more concerned as society with our comfort than with what's right. I think we've become more concerned with our comfort than doing what needs to be done, and even to the point of even caring for the needs of our family, we've put our comfort above that. And I think we've just become so self-absorbed that nothing else really matters anymore. In thinking about this, how many of you have ever, of course we all have, we've all had somebody tell us, and we've said it to people, especially our children, we've said, just do your best, right? How many of you have said that before? You've looked at somebody who was stressed out, and you just put a hand on them, and you said, just do your best. You know, I was thinking about that recently. I don't know if just do your best is a good term. I don't know if that's a good phrase to make. Because, you know, the reality is, usually we can do a whole lot more than we think we can do. Especially if we are pushed by the right person and if we have the right motivation. Usually we can go far beyond what we think that we can do. Isn't that true? So when somebody says, and they put a hand on you and they're like, brother, just... Just do your best. Do you feel inspired to go all out? You're like, yes, I'm going to do my... No. Really, what it is, is it's permission to just get by, isn't it? It's permission to do good enough. Hey, I did my best. Did I really? Or did what, it, what I really meant was, was it, hey, I gave it my best shot hey, I did good enough. I actually, I started this series a few weeks ago, and I called it Do Hard Things, and I, I made the art and did the whole thing. And I got to thinking, I was trying to figure out, I thought I'd heard it before, and I went back looking, and uh, I found in my Amazon account a book called Do Hard Things. And it's actually, it was a book for teenagers I read years and years ago by uh, the Harris Brothers, if you've heard of them. And, uh, and it was about inspiring young people to do the hard things in life. And so um, I actually read it again last week, and, and the series is not necessarily based on that book, but it's a really good book, and I, I would encourage you, especially if you've got uh, junior high or senior high teenagers, I, I encourage you to get that and, um, and have them read it. But I am going to read one excerpt today from this, because it talks about that, about that whole being good enough. They said, it's easy to be content with less than our best, especially when our half-hearted efforts seem to satisfy everyone around us. And being good enough can turn into a special hazard because those who could do a whole lot better or tackle a much bigger challenge seldom do so when they're already good enough by everyone else's standards. Does that make sense? We live in a good enough society. That's what we've become. And in thinking about this, and especially probably since I read that book again last week, it got me thinking about when we were kids and about our kids, because I think this is ingrained in us from the time that we're a very young age. When we're kids, there's this idea that, you know what? You're just a kid. You can't expect too much of a kid. A kid wasn't meant to have adult responsibility. 
they should be able to have fun and live the life of a child. Children are supposed to have fun. They're not supposed to have responsibilities. Is it not true there's this kind of idea out there? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, actually, I'll make the point. I'll, I'll illustrate this. Actually, it reminded me of a story. I had, I remember years ago when my parents made us start cleaning our own bathroom. Yeah, that's lovely. And you know, my mom, she knows how to clean. So I mean, it's, you got instructions. You clean the sink and the counters and the cabinets and you clean the, you clean the mirror and, and you didn't just clean the toilet bowl with the brush. You got your hand down there and you scrubbed under the rim and you got the seat and you got the underside of the seat and you got behind the seat and you got the dust off the top and you got down on the side where guys kind of hit the underside of the toilet. <laughs> you got all that. and You know what I'm saying? And so you learn to clean the toilet. You learn to clean the bathroom. I remember one time, I remember that coming up in front of another family member one time. And I remember this family member saying, what? Making your kids clean the bathroom? That's not a kid's job. Their cl- job's not to clean the bathroom. Your kid shouldn't have to clean the toilet. I don't know if they said that in front of y'all or not. I'll tell you later who it was. <laughs> and of course, my first thought was, yeah, what they said. <laughs> but, but, you know, really, what the, this kind of talk, what it communicates to, to kids when we say this kind of thing, it communicates You're not big enough, you're not old enough, you're not wise enough, you're not brave enough to handle important stuff. Have fun, be a kid, when you get older, you'll be able to do something big. And I think that gets ingrained in us when we're very young. 1 Corinthians 13, 11 says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I came man, I put away childish things. Now let me tell you what verse 12 does not say. It does not say, when I became a teenager, I looked like a man, but I spoke as a child. I understood as a child, and I thought as a child. Do you realize there is no such thing as a teenager in the Bible? You know where the word teenager came from? It it was first used in 1941 in an issue of Reader's Digest. Do you realize before that time, there was no such thing as a teenager? Do you realize in the Bible, there's no such thing as a teenager? You're a child, and you're a man. You're a woman, you're a, you're a child, and then you're a woman. The only thing the Bible talks about, talks about youth, and most agree that youth is more elementary age, what we would call elementary age today, and it talks briefly about, it talks about adolescence a little bit, but that's just a very short period. It, it, it tends to more refer to entering puberty. There's no such thing as a teenager in the Bible. You know, in the ancient, in the ancient world, you were considered a man, you were considered a woman when you were of age to marry and have children. In ancient Rome, that age was 14 years old by law. But in most cultures back in that day, it was based on puberty. Girls, you started your period, it was time to get married and have babies. And you started spitting them out immediately. And there was no birth control. So you were 13 and carrying two and three children around. Well, you think, well, that was a long time ago. Well, in 1791, the age of consent for marriage in France was 11. In 1875, in England, it was 12. You still think that was a long time ago. In 2015, the age of consent in Spain to marry, this is one of the socially and technologically advanced nations of the world, was 13 in 2015. 13 years old. The point I'm making is, look, I'm not not saying our children should get married at 13, okay? Please, please, our children, land's alive. But... (laughs) 
What I'm saying is that we have dumbed down life and we have dumbed down responsibility and I think that our culture and the way we were raised has instilled that even in our children and they grow up the same way. There was an article a number of years ago and I, I know I'm hanging on to this whole thing about children for a minute but I'm just kind of trying to give a basis. There was an article a number of years ago on, uh, on the internet. It was called A Parent's Guide to Surviving the Teen Years. It was for parents who wondered what responsibility should I give my children and what age should I give them responsibility? And so it was, a little, it was some little guidelines. And so it said for preteens and younger teens, it was ages 10 through 14, it said that child should be expected to make their bed, be able to take a message on the telephone, and be able to clean their room once a week with help from mom and dad by 14. And that's it. End of story. It goes on to say that by a child, time a child is between the ages of 15 and 18, they should be able to do all the things on the younger kids list, as well as clean their room once a week without help from mom and dad at 18. Do a daily chore, just one, like take out the trash. And once they're driving, make sure the gas gauge stays above a quarter tank. The end. Let me read you a quick story. And some of you will know who I'm talking about here once I get to reading for a minute. But let me read you a story about a man named David. David was born in 1801 near the city of Knoxville, Tennessee, where his father was serving in the state militia. At 10 years old, David began his career at sea with the U.S. Navy, serving as a cadet on the warship USS Essex. How old was he? 10. At age 11, he saw his first battle. At age 12, David was given command of a British ship that had been captured in battle and was dispatched with a crew to take the vessel and its prisoners back to the United States. How old was he? 12, in charge of a captured British ship and all the prisoners. On the journey home, the captured British captain took issue at being ordered around by a 12-year-old boy and announced that he was going below deck to get his pistols. Out of respect for his position, he had been allowed to keep them. 12-year-old David promptly sent word that if he stepped one foot on his deck with his pistols, he would be immediately shot and thrown overboard. The captain decided best to stay below. David's full name, does anybody know? Put it on the screen. It was David Farragut. David Farragut was the U.S. Navy's very first admiral and hero during the Civil War. While commanding a fleet of 14 wooden ships and four ironclads, he ran right through a Confederate minefield known for yelling the phrase, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. His courage in the face of heavy enemy fire at the Battle of Mobile Bay won him lasting fame, but it was far from his first act of bravery. He had been preparing for this moment ever since his childhood as a 10-year-old cadet aboard the USS Essex. Have we not dumbed things down just a little bit? As youth pastors, we used to be surprised. We would do youth trips and... You ever tried to get three or four van loads of teenagers in and out of a fast food restaurant? <laughs> Lord Jesus. So we got, you know, my wife, she got it down to an art. It was like we'd get them lined up. You try not to tick off everybody in the restaurant. And you, you get them all lined up in one line and know, get your, have your money ready, know what you want, be ready to order immediately. And we'd get them lined up. We'd be at the register and we'd, we'd just be filing them through one after one. And it amazed me how many 14, 15, and 16-year-olds couldn't order their food at a fast food restaurant. They would walk up, they'd get up to the counter, and they'd turn and look at us and go, on a number two with a Coke. And you'd be like, tell the lady, she's taking the order. And, and you're like, and, and we got to where we made a point of it. We'd say, she's right here. She's ready to take your order. Turn to her and place your order. And they would just, uh, you know, and it just, it just 
and I, it, just, it just blew our minds, and, and, and it just got me thinking, you know, how in the world can we expect our young people to do hard things if they can't order their food at 16 years old from somebody who's there to take their order? I read another article. I had to go back and look. It was last year. Eight things kids need to do by themselves by the age of 13. I posted this last year. It said, for parents, walk away from these eight things for your teen this school year. This may surprise some of you. Number one, waking them up in the morning. Number two, making their breakfast and packing their lunch. Number three, filling out their paperwork. Number four, delivering items at school they've forgotten. Number five, making their failure to plan your emergency. Number six, doing their laundry. Number seven, emailing and calling their teachers and coaches over every little problem. And number eight, constantly meddling in their academics. What happens in us, many of us, probably most of us, we grew up this way, and by 13, 14, 15 years old, we grow up and we get, we get medals for participation, trophies for participation on a losing team. Yay, you rode the bench all year, but you did great, right? And, and we get smiley faces because we didn't talk too much. Boy, that's really a high bar to hit, isn't it? And we get a pat on the back and a good job when we brushed our teeth. True? And we were never taught to aspire to the hard stuff in life. And then what happens? We grow up and we go off to college, and most college kids today are just as much about, hey, I'm, I'm here, I'm all the way from my parents, I'm going to sow my wild oats, I'm going to have a good time, I'm here to partay, right? Because they think that's part of life, they think that's part of their purpose and part of the reason. That ranks for many of them above the responsibility of schoolwork and academics. And then we really become adults, Right? We grow into adults, and we've never learned to do the hard stuff. And we wonder why people, no condemnation, but we wonder why people are divorcing for the third time and saying, well, I just have such bad luck with men, such bad luck with women, but, but I deserve love. And the reality is we never really learned to do the hard stuff that the Bible talks about and that God's Word says. We grow into adults that every year say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get healthy and I'm going to change my diet and, 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 and I'm going to live to see my grandchildren. And, and it lasts for a week because we can't do the hard stuff. We decide, I'm going to quit spending more than I make and I'm going to get out of debt and I'm going to start saving for my future and my retirement and my kids' education, whatever it is. And it lasts for a month because we can't make the hard decisions. We decide I'm going to start giving and tithing to my church and doing my part, and it lasts for a month because we can't make the hard choices. We decide I'm going to quit being so stressed and so busy, and I'm going to spend more time with friends and family, and it lasts for a weekend because we can't seem to do the hard stuff. And let me say, guys, if we can't do the hard stuff in these situations, how in the world can we expect God to use us to our full potential and for us to truly be used to do something great in life? Does this make sense? Understand where I'm coming from? Proverbs 13, 23 says, All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads to poverty. Doing the hard things will lead to a place of prosperity in our life. And I'm not talking about financially, which it will too. But I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about area of our life. As a husband, as a wife, as a, as a father, as a mother, as an employee, as a friend, as a coworker, as a student. As a, if we do the hard things, 
we're going to prosper. People say, but I might fail. Yes, you will. Well, that sounds like a lot of trouble. It will be. Sounds tiring. It'll be exhausting. But Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who does what? Strengthens me. How can we believe that we are sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords and that we're called to greatness if we're not willing to do the hard things in life that God's called us to do? i got to move. Man, I'm, gonna, I'm just opening up today. I've I got three more weeks of this planned out. Um, I'm just going to answer the question today, why do the hard things? Why do the hard things in life? So y'all just follow along in your notes. But number one, reason to do the hard things. Sometimes it's the only choice to move forward. How many times do we sit still because we won't make a hard decision? And it keeps us from moving forward. Now, how many of you know we live in a fallen world? And sometimes we just find ourselves in a bad situation. Now, many times the bad situations we find ourselves in, many times it is our fault, isn't it? Many times we make a bad decision. We've all made bad decisions. But how many of you know there are bad situations in life that are unavoidable? Sometimes you just find, it wouldn't have mattered the decision that you made. You find yourself in a bad situation that you can't immediately get out of. You can't talk your way out of. You can't pay your way out of. You don't know necessarily what the right choice to make here is. There's no quick resolution to it. We find ourselves in these moments, right? And so I want to give an example, and this was actually read last week about Jesus and the disciples in the storm. Mark 4, 37-41, it says, A great windstorm arose, waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling. And he was it, but he, being Jesus, was in the stern asleep on a pillow. And when they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you care nothing that we are perishing? I'm sorry, they awoke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the storm and said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? A couple things I see here. Firstly, guys, this was obviously a bad storm. These are fishermen. A, a group of these guys were fishermen. They spent every day of their life, probably from the time they were little children with their dads, on these boats. They knew storms. And here, you can see here, if you read it, they thought they were going to die. They said, we are dying. Do you not care that we're perishing? So this was obviously, for most of us here, we're probably not fishermen that spend our whole life out on a boat. This was probably a bad storm, right? So here they are in the middle of this bad storm, and they are panicking. There's no easy way out of it. They probably didn't know a storm was coming in the first place, so they probably wouldn't have pushed out on the boat, right? They're over there on the shore. There's, is there anything they could have done beforehand to avoid this storm? Was, there, was, it, was the storm come because they made a bad decision? Did it come because of something wrong that they had done? Of course not. They just found themselves, they get out to sea to make a crossing, and they find themselves in the middle of a life-threatening storm, right? There was probably no turning back. We don't even know if they could see the shore. And they don't know what to do. All they know is that they think they're about to die, and they wake Jesus up. Thank goodness, right? They wake Jesus up. We don't see the slightest inkling of an indication here that Jesus was intimidated in the slightest, right? 
He stood up, he rebuked the storm, and then he made it into a, he made it into a teaching moment and basically said, hey guys, in the storms, trust Father. He's got it. There's no need to panic. Have faith. And that was the moment of a testing and a teaching moment for them as they, had to, as they saw the big picture of things. They realized who Jesus was. Does this make sense? And with that, I see some of you Canada guys looking at me. We ran into a few storms, got me thinking we were out in, in Canada, and we had our, our uh, that was what, was that four weeks ago? Man, that wasn't long ago. It's amazing. Seems like it's been months. Um, that we were out there, and, and uh, we had run into storms the second day, but the third day we had to make a decision. We were on an island, and we had to make a decision where we were going to go. And if we didn't leave this island this day, we were basically going to have to stay here. We couldn't go make the same loop and make it back in time before the end of the trip. So we had to make a decision. Are we staying here, or are we moving on? And that was a cold day, wasn't it? It reached down about 40 degrees that night. It was chilly, and it was drizzling, and the wind was ferocious. And when you're out on kayaks and canoes, that's not a lot of fun. We waited till lunchtime. I think we actually ate lunch first before we, before we decided to push out. The wind was blowing a certain direction. We're like, okay, if the wind keeps blowing that direction, we can go around this way. We'll be sheltered by this island. We can make the crossing across and whatever. And so we pushed out around lunchtime. to try And, and we had to make the decision to go or not because we don't want to get caught on the water at nightfall, right? So we push out, and guess what? We get out a little ways into open water, and the wind changes direction. And I found myself getting concerned because we had a number of people with us who were not experienced, who could not swim well, were in deep water, the waves were crashing over the sides of our canoes and kayaks, it was cold, we were all getting soaked, and I'm wondering what in the world, and we're a long ways from where we're needing to go. And we, get, we finally, there was an island up ahead, we pulled over to this island, and uh, just before we get to it, our awesome Boy Scout leader, Paul, goes over in his kayak. I'm going, oh, no. And I heard a few voices spoke up and said, if Paul can't do this, we don't, I don't need to be doing it either. And I was like, oh, Lord. And we get to this island, and we're on it. And, guys, this, I'm thinking, maybe we can just stay on this island. But you know what the problem with the island was? It was all rock. It was rock and trees. There was nowhere to pitch a tent. There was nowhere to put a fire. We could barely get shelter from the wind. There was nowhere to put our canoes and kayaks. We had to pull them up on rocks. I'm talking big boulders. It was a mess. And I found myself in a place where I didn't want to make the decision here. Because <laughs> there was plenty of griping going on, <laughs> which I understood. And I, was, I found myself asking everybody's opinions. What should we do? What do you think we ought to do? How do you feel? And, what are, and I was so concerned that everybody, what everybody thought. And we, how long did we hunker down there? Was it an hour? And I remember I was so, I couldn't decide what in the world to do. And I didn't want to make the decision, frankly, because I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to be a bad one. <laughs> I didn't want people to gripe when we, I said, let's push out. I didn't want to have to deal with people going over in the water because we had to make a big crossing uh, across open water to get where we were going. It, and we're just watching the waves just crashing over there. And we see the, you know, the gray clouds and everything else. And, and I ended up sitting down and uh, I had talked to Dennis and I had talked to, Paul and different ones, and I finally, I think I sat down next to Michael. Didn't we sit on a rock there? And, and I just pulled my poncho down, just trying to stay warm, and just sitting there on that rock, and, and I just started praying in the Spirit, and I was like, oh God, what do we do? What do, you know, do we stay here? Do we go? And, and I just felt like, I felt like the Lord was saying, why are you sitting here praying? I was like, well, isn't that what you do? You know? 
And, and that's why I felt like the Lord was saying, you know what's got to be done. And I remember looking back, and I, I, we, where we were sitting, we could look, and we could see where the wind was blowing, we could see the waves, and I could see back around the way we had come from, from sitting right there. And I knew we couldn't go back where we came. The wind was blowing against us. We wouldn't make it halfway for everybody would have been exhausted. And plus, now the waves have been crashing over the fronts of our boats. And I knew we couldn't camp on the island, and I just stood up. And I got Aaron. I said, Aaron, get in your kayak. And I pushed him out, and we all followed and we made that crossing. Have you know that what the Lord showed me is that sometimes there's no other way to go but forward. Sometimes we've got to make the decision that we're not going to sit still, we're not going to put it off, we're going to deal with it, and we're going to do what needs to be done, and we're going to trust God. And we do what needs to be done, and we do it with wisdom, and in love, and with grace. We do the hard things so that we can make progress and actually move forward. Second thing I want to mention to you right quick, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I'm going to talk about it probably next week, but number two, the reward is worth the sacrifice. Why do the hard things? Because the reward is worth the sacrifice. Guys, great things don't happen when we take the easy way out. we got to make good, difficult decisions today and know that we will reap the rewards of them later. And I think that's one of the problems. I think the problem is that we know that when we do the hard things, that they rarely pay off immediately, right? It takes time. Sometimes it takes years. Sometimes it takes decades. How many of you see that money coming out of your check and going into your 401k? You're like, oh, Lord, that's a lot of money. I could sure use it today. But one day it's going to pay off, right? How many of you remember when you bought your first car? I mean, you bought your very own car for the first time. How do you remember that? You spent more money than you had ever spent in your life. You're trying hard times parting with it. You're going, oh, my Lord, you know, how do I pass this over? And you may have saved up like you had never saved before. You sacrificed. Or maybe, or maybe you had to make payments. Maybe, but even to make payments, you had to make an adjustment to your budget. You had to make an adjustment in your spending. You had to make some hard decisions so that you could make that payment. The hard choice was worth the sacrifice. And you probably remember when you got your first scratch. (gasps) There's a scratch on the side of my car, right? But there's such satisfaction when we do the hard things for something. There's so much satisfaction in it. And and I think there's the harder something is, the more satisfaction that we find. Back to the Canada trip, we made that crossing, obviously. (laughs) Most of us are here. We made that crossing, got to the other side, and, and it tripped me out because we got over there and we finally, we got around a little corner, a little hill where we were sheltered from the wind and stuff, and what were people doing? Several guys were hooping and hollering and high-fiving and whatever else because we found satisfaction in the accomplishment and doing the hard thing. Does that make sense? Dave Ramsey talks about this a little bit. Any of you ever listen to Dave Ramsey? You know, he's a financial guy, and he you know, he, he has this phrase that he says, live like no other today so that you can live like no other tomorrow. Now, he's talking financially. So what does Dave Ramsey mean by live like no other today so you can live like no other tomorrow? He basically, Dave Ramsey would stay, say, start giving today, start tithing today, start budgeting today, start saving today instead of spending like everybody else. Get out of debt. Spend less than you bring in. Do the hard things today. Why? So that as you get older, you find yourself on up there in years a little bit, and all your peers who did not do the hard things are struggling and will struggle for the rest of their lives because they didn't do the hard things years ago. You'll find yourself living comfortably. 
right? Live like nobody else today by doing the hard things that others aren't doing so that you can live like nobody else tomorrow by reaping the rewards of it. It's sowing and reaping. Proverbs eleven eighteen. he who sows righteousness will have a sure reward. Galatians 6, 7, 8, y'all know this, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man seeps, seeps, reaps what he sows. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. So guys, here what, here what I would say. It may be hard today, some of the hard decisions that you're facing, but start dealing with, we're talking about finances. Start dealing with that bad financial situation today. Start chipping away at that debt that is just eating you alive every month. Start doing it today. Start dealing with that family conflict, that unre- unresolved stuff that always causes tension in your family. Start dealing with it today. Start giving forgiveness that you never gave today. Start making your rights wrong. Your wrongs right today. Start dealing Start dealing with that health issue that you won't face. Start dealing with it today so that you can reap the rewards tomorrow. Start pursuing your dreams today. Start getting your life back on track with God today. Will it be hard? It's going to be hard. It's going to be exhausting. But you can do all things through Christ. We've got to quit putting stuff off because it's hard. We've got to do those hard things so that we can reap the benefits of it later. And last thing, number three, why do the hard things? To prove our trust in God. To prove our trust in God. Man. I'm going to read you another quick story. This is about David before he was king. And if you read it, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 30. In the previous scriptures before this, David and his men are coming back from a big battle. And This is actually, this was such a great battle. This is where David's coming back and the people are shouting, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. Y'all remember that? Big battle. He's coming back from this battle. He's leading the armies. They're exhausted. They're just ready to get home. Any of you ever been there? Been gone for a long time. You've been fighting. You've been doing whatever. You're exhausted. You just want to get home and see your family and eat a meal and go to bed. Can you picture this? So here they are on their way back. And then in verse Uh, Chapter 30, verse 1, says, Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag. Ziklag, Man, i got to slow down, my bad. Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, attacked Ziklag, and burned it with fire, and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire. And their wives, their sons, and their daughters had all been taken captive. And then David and the people who were with him lifted their, up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam, whatever, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, Carmelite, had been taken captive. Can you imagine this? Won this great battle, this great victory, They're ready to be home. They get there, and the city has been burned down with fire. Their wives and children are gone. In verse 6, now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him. Why? Well, he was the one who led them off into battle, left the city unprotected, right? Because the soul of all the people were grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord. Then the Lord said to Abiathar the priest, Amalek's son, please bring the ephod here to me. That's a a, a priestly garment. Um, 
And, and he brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And the Lord answered, Pursue, for you will surely overtake them without fail and recover all. Now, how many know this was tough? His guys are exhausted and worn out. They don't know how big this army is that they're going after that has all their stuff. He, I talk about some grumbling. You talk about people who already have wept till they had no more to weep. But the Lord said, Pursue. So, in verse 9, so David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and came to Brook Basor, where those who stayed were left behind. But David pursued, he and 400 men, for 200 men stayed behind who were so weary they couldn't cross the Brook of Basor. And if you jump down to verse 17, then David attacked them from twilight until evening of the next day. 24 hours they battled. Not a man of them escaped except for 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives, and nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which had been taken from them. David recovered all. Then David took all the flocks and herds they had driven before those other livestock. The Amalekite army had come through and already had spoil. David took all that too and said, this is David's spoil. Wowzers couple of things in closing here. Guys, things were bad. You can imagine David didn't know what to do, but we see the key to it in verse 6. It says, David strengthened himself in the Lord. In the middle of a bad situation where he didn't think he could press on any further, he didn't know what the right answer was. He didn't know if they could win. He sought after the Lord. And he he prayed, and, and the Lord spoke to him and told him what to do. He trusted the Lord at his word. He rallied his men together, and they took off into battle. And didn't lose one thing. As a matter of fact, went back with more than they lost. I think that, unfortunately, when we get comfortable and settle in in life, especially as Americans, we find that there's no reason, real reason to trust God anymore. I think that many times that we, and look, I am so guilty of this. How many of you are the kind of person you like everything in just the right order so that you aren't taken by surprise and everything goes a certain way? I am totally like that. How many of you know <laughs> that a lot of times it doesn't work out the way you want? And really what we're doing, and look, it's, there's always balance. It's great to use wisdom and to plan. However, what we're really trying to do is control and manipulate our environment and the circumstances so that nothing uncomfortable happens. It can go to that extreme. Does that make sense? Sometimes we get so used to the nine to five grind, getting home, eating dinner, watching TV and going to bed and then getting up and starting over again that that becomes our entire life. And then we wonder why in the world we're going through a midlife crisis? Why in the world do I feel so inappreciated? Why in the world do I even exist? Because we've settled for so much less, so much less than greatness in our lives. We're not doing anything of significance. We're not going beyond what's expected in life. Let me say this. We were born with a desire for significance. We were born to do something significant. You are called for more than to live a mediocre life.
Some of you have been given dreams and visions, maybe even prophetic words in your life. And they've been sitting on a shelf getting dusty for years, and for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, you've occasionally been reminded of it, and you've said, well, maybe someday. Maybe someday I'll have time. Maybe someday things will settle down. Maybe someday, maybe someday. Maybe it's to tell your story to others. Maybe it's to be a witness. Maybe it's to begin to use that hidden talent that nobody knows that you have. Maybe it's to go on a missions trip. Maybe it's to begin serving. Maybe it's again tithing. And we haven't even gotten to the hard stuff. I believe there's probably some of you in this room who are supposed to write a book. Where's the point where we buckle down and we do the things that God's placed within our heart to do that looks too big for where we are right now, that we're just too busy for? Do something hard. Do something out of the ordinary. Trust God and allow Him to prove Himself and His Word in your life. Do we believe that God is who He says He is? Then we've got to trust Him with our life. We've got to do something hard. We've got to do something bigger than ourselves. Just a few scriptures in closing. Guys, we can trust God. Psalm 39, 19 says, Many of the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. John 14, 1 was Jesus speaking. He said, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and also trust in me. Isaiah 40, verse 31, Those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Mark eleven twenty four. this is huge. Therefore I say to you, whatsoever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, excuse me, and you shall have them. What are you believing for? Guys, it, it amazes me. This hit me about a year ago, how few Christians are believing God for anything in their life outside of blessing the food and a good day at work. Where's the point where we begin to pray and we begin to trust God for something big, something of significance, something so much bigger than ourselves that we can't possibly accomplish it on our own? Where's the point that we endure and we push through instead of giving up for the sake of good enough? Where's the place where we allow God to be our strength and Him to be our motivation and to push us forward? We cannot settle for less than God's best in our life. We can't let fear or pride or laziness hold us back. We need to know who we are in Christ, and we need to begin doing, stop putting off, and begin doing the hard things in life. There are hard decisions, I think, that all of us know that we need to make. What's that hard decision? What is it that's holding you back? For, for some of you, it may be a relationship. It may be a friend. It may be a family member. And look, this is hard. But sometimes it's the only way to move forward. Sometimes you need to break off a relationship. Sometimes you've got to step away at least for a period of time. But you're afraid of doing so because uh, they've been a friend of mine for so long. But, but, but they're family. I've got to, you know what I'm saying? And they're holding you back. They're tearing you down. It's always drama. It's always something. Nothing's ever good enough. They're always speaking negative. And it's just tearing your family apart. Where's the point that we step back? Is that friend going to be upset? Yeah, they're going to cry and yell, well, well you're, just, you're just holier than thou. You just think you have it all together. No, I've got to move forward and you're not willing to. 
and I've got to step beyond this. You're more than glad that I'm more than glad to let you follow me and come with me, but I've got to move forward. Sometimes we've got to make hard decisions that are really difficult, but we have to do it for the sake of moving forward. We've all been at the place in life where we were standing still and accomplishing nothing and wondering what in the world the point of all this even was in the first place. It's because we're not pursuing, we're not going forward. We're finding no satisfaction because we're not doing anything that's actually hard, anything that we're actually called to do beyond what's expected. Does anybody bear witness with this at all? You see it in our generations, that our generation, the previous generation, our culture, our society. Let's stand up together. Let's bow our heads. Now I'm just gonna, we're running a couple minutes late, so I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap up real quickly. But, but guys, the most important hard decision you'll ever make is to surrender your life to Jesus. And I know we even, even growing up, many times we were told, it's real easy, just pray this prayer. Let me tell you, the Bible says that when you surrender your life to Jesus, it says you take up your cross and you follow him. And how many of you know taking up your cross is not an easy thing? Giving your life, surrendering it to Jesus shouldn't be a flippant decision that we make. It's something we stop and consider and realize, I'm losing, I'm losing my selfishness. I'm going to have to put myself aside and I'm going to have to live my life for Jesus and do things His way rather than the way that I always have thought was best, rather than what is self-pleasing to me. I'm going to have to get beyond myself and being so self-absorbed and I'm actually going to have to think about the people around me. I'm actually going to have to live and be the hands and feet of Jesus. I'm going to have to love people. I'm going to have to respond the way Jesus would respond and do things the way he would do them. That, the cross, when we pick up our cross and follow, the cross is the road to execution. What are we executing? We're executing ourself, our selfishness, so that he can live through us instead. The greatest hard decision to make is to surrender your life to follow Jesus. Let's bow our heads. If that's you and you would say, you know what, I need to, I need to make the hard decision to follow Jesus in my life. Maybe you've, maybe you've prayed a prayer. Maybe you've done that in the past. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe you were baptized, but, but you find yourself in a place where you're saying, you know what, I just, I haven't been willing to do the hard stuff for God. I haven't surrendered myself. I'm struggling, struggling with my own selfishness and doing things my own way. Uh, he's not really Lord right now of my life. I, I'm really Lord of my life, and I, I need to make things right. I need, to, I need to surrender again. I need to come back to Him. If that's you, and you would say that you need to give your life to Jesus, you want to surrender right now, or that you need to re-surrender, you need to rededicate your life to Him, with every head bowed, just lift your hand and let me see right quick. Is there anybody that would say, I need to surrender my life to Jesus today? I need to rededicate my life to Jesus. Anybody else? Awesome. Anybody else? All right, we're going to pray together. And the Bible says you pray this, it's, it's a matter of your heart. If you mean this when you say it, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that you choose to believe in who he is, that he is who he says he is, that you will be transformed, that your spirit comes alive, you are reborn, you become a new creation, and all things become new. And now you'll have the creator of the universe walking with you giving you peace and joy in the midst of the storms. All things become new. We're going to pray this together. If that's you, just mean it with all your heart. Let's all say, dear God, I thank you so much 
for sending Jesus. I know that I am lost without him. So today, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I give you everything, my dreams, my desires, even my logic, my way of thinking, I surrender it all to you. I lay my life down, I pick up my cross, and I follow you. Jesus, I confess that you are now Lord of my life. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of my failing. Take my sin. Take my shame. I'll follow you all the days of my life. Holy Spirit, fill me. Empower me to be everything you've called me to be. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to get more information about resources from Church of the Harvest, please check out our website at midsouthharvest.org. You may also contact us by phone at 662-890-1573 or toll free at 866-383-8277.